Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 142, The Crimean War, Part 3. Last time we began to describe the ramping up of tensions between Russia, Britain, France, Sardinia, and the dying Ottoman Empire. Today we're going to continue with the story of how this war, which easily could have been stopped, came about. We will also cover the opening volleys in a conflict that would change the world. But before we start, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that today, as I'm recording this podcast, it marks the fourth anniversary of the beginning of the Russian Rulers History podcast. As I've mentioned before, my plan was to go for about a year and do about 50 or so episodes before moving on. But here we are four years later on April 30th, 2014, and we're still going strong. My thanks to all my wonderful listeners who continue to urge me on to give you my take on Russian history. One correction I have to make from the last podcast is how I pronounce the name of the author of the book, The Crimean War, A History. I was mistaken when I called him Professor Orlando Fidges, or Fidges but it is pronounced Orlando Fidges. Sorry for that. Now on with the show. One area of contention that I did not discuss last time was the issue of the Greeks, who were suffering under the thumb of the Ottoman Turks. Ever since the sacking of Constantinople in 1453 by Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II, the Greek population in the region were under control of the Turks. When they rebelled in 1821 in Moldavia, they fully expected to have Russian backing. But this was not to be the case as Tsar Alexander I felt that his sticking to the Holy Alliance with Austrian Prussia, which was formed in 1815 to prevent revolutions in Europe, was far more important than supporting his fellow Orthodox Christians. What the Greek situation did do, though, was build popular support within the Russian people at home, something that was going to be important if war was ever started again. There was a general hatred of the Turks built over the centuries, but with the Ottoman Empire in a death spiral, the Russian military were drooling over the possibilities, so they needed a cause d'etre. What incited even more hatred was how the Turks suppressed the Moldavian Greek rebellion. With 30,000 troops, they invaded and massacred the local population, where they, as Fiji's puts it, quote, looted churches, murdered priests, men, women, and children, and mutilated their bodies, cutting off their noses, ears, and heads, while their officers looked on. Furthermore, on Easter Sunday, 1821, the Patriarch of Constantinople and numerous bishops were hung in the capital city. The outrage in Russia was extreme. So now he set the table for the Russian and Turkish people's support of a war, although we'll return to the Ottomans later. Now we turn to the other side of Europe with France and Great Britain. France's hatred of the Russians should be rather obvious. I mean, they did defeat the French in the Napoleonic Wars and marched into Paris in 1814, which was a real humiliating event in the hearts of the French. On top of it, the French, now under Napoleon III, as I said last time, believed that they were the defenders of the Catholic Church against the heretical Orthodox under Nicholas I of Russia. Popular support against the Russians was not a problem for the Emperor of France. As for the British, 
Things were a little tougher, but the print media was more than happy to stoke the sparks of war along with the Foreign Ministry of Great Britain under Lord Palmerston. As he wrote to Lord John Ponsby in December of 1833, quote, The Cabinet of St. Petersburg, whenever its foreign policy is adverted to, deals largely in the most unqualified declarations of disinterestedness and protests that, satisfied with the extensive limits of the empire, it desires no increase of territory and has renounced all those plans of aggrandizement which were to impute Russia. But notwithstanding these declarations, it has been observed that the encroachments of Russia have continued to advance on all sides with a steady march and a well-directed aim, and that almost every transaction of much importance in which of late years Russia has been engaged has in some way or another been made conducive to an alteration of her influence or of her territory. The recent events in the Levant have indeed, by an unfortunate combination of circumstances, enabled her to make an enormous stride towards the accomplishment of her designs upon Turkey, and it becomes of object of great importance for the interests of Great Britain to consider how Russia can be prevented from pushing her advantage further and to see whether it is possible to deprive her of the advantage she has already gained. Palmerston was facing an issue in Turkey, as they feared a possible Egyptian Islamic takeover of the Ottoman Empire, or Russia becoming the protectorate of the Turks. Neither was acceptable to British interests, with the Russian option, in their opinion, being the worst choice. They now knew that they had to begin to arm themselves in the region, especially moving key parts of their navy into the area. In 1834, Tsar Nicholas went to England to meet with his British counterpart, Queen Victoria, and her senior advisors. There he believed that he solidified the relationship between Russia and Great Britain. The problem was that he failed to understand the British governmental system. He believed that it was the Queen who made the decisions and that she listened to her senior advisors. And that was that. He seemingly had no clue that Parliament and public opinion had any say in foreign affairs. Well, how could they? They're mere peasants, like the Russian people. The Tsar was the final say, as was the Queen. As we know, this was an ignorant way of thinking, but that was the thought process of this and the last two Tsars. They were God's representatives on earth, and they were there to take care of the people. Another thorn in the side of the Russians that led to the outbreak of the Crimean War was the Polish question, and in particular, the Polish November Uprising of 1830 to 1831. While eventually crushed and Poland completely taken over by Russia, many of the insurgents fled to France and England, where they stoked the fires of Russophobia, especially one Prince Adam Zodorowsky. He and his band of Polish revolutionaries also helped to put the French and the British together, pointing out their common enemy. It wasn't until the 1830s that France began to really turn strongly towards an anti-Russian stance. The crushing of the Polish uprising was the last straw that broke the camel's back. The Poles were their Catholic brethren, and they were put under the thumb of the Orthodox heretics. One incident, 
1845 really drove home this point. The Russians tried to force a group of 245 Catholic nuns to convert, and when they refused, they were arrested, tortured, and beaten. Four of them escaped Poland and made it to Paris, where they told their story. This was enough, and the Russophobia and hatred of the Tsar was beginning to boil over. But still, war was not inevitable. Diplomatic means of averting hostilities seemed not just possible, but likely, except the opposing sides were guided by pompous and ignorant men. One who was sent in February of 1853 was the Russian envoy to Constantinople, Prince Alexander Menshikov, a 65-year-old veteran of a number of wars. Sir George Hamilton Seymour, the British ambassador to St. Petersburg, thought that while Menshikov was, quote, a remarkable, well-informed man, he was, quote, with more independence of character than perhaps belongs to any of the emperor's associates. His peculiar turn of thought constantly showing itself by sarcastic observations, which make him a little dreaded in St. Petersburg. Great choice, Nicholas. Send a sarcastic military man, who, by the way, was castrated by a cannonball during a sea battle to negotiate sensitive issues with your archenemy. That's the key to success. Not. Of course, his behavior stunned and angered the Turks. Instead of negotiating, he threatened, acting like a bully instead of a diplomat. Slowly, his threats and the demands he was making of the Ottomans leaked to the European embassies. They were as appalled as the Turks were, and they began to message their home governments of the grave situation. The mission to the port of the Turks was an abject failure. Nicholas now was sure that war was sure to happen. He wrote to a confidant, Field Marshal Paskevich, the following, quote, The consequence of Menshikov's failure is war. However, before I get to that, I have decided to send my troops into the Danubian principalities to show the world how far I would go to avoid war and send a final ultimatum to the Turks to satisfy my demands within eight days. And if they don't, I shall declare war on them. My aim is to occupy the principalities without a war. If the Turks do not meet us on the left bank of the Danube, if the Turks resist, I shall blockade the Bosporus and seize Turkish ships on the Black Sea. I shall propose to Austria to occupy Herzegovina and Serbia. If that does not take effect, I shall declare the independence of the principalities, Serbia and Herzegovina, and then the Turkish Empire will begin to crumble. For everywhere there will be Christian uprisings, and the last hour of the Ottoman Empire will sound. I do not intend to cross the Danube. The empire will collapse without it. But I shall keep my fleet prepared, and the 13th and the 14th divisions will remain on a war footing in Sevastopol and Odessa. Canning's actions do not put me off. I must go by my own path and fulfill my duty according to my faith as befits the honor of Russia. You cannot imagine how much all of this saddens me. I've grown old, but I would like to end my life in peace. One of the big takeaways from this is Nicholas being convinced that the Austrians would side with him and would help him defeat the Turks. Paskevich was not so sure as he believed the Austrians would become very nervous if the Russian forces crossed the Danube as it would destabilize 
those areas they controlled that were predominantly Orthodox. Because Paskevich was wary of full committal to a war, he played to this belief of the Tsar. Part of the field marshal's concern was the casualties suffered in both the earlier Danubian offensive in 1828 to 1829 and the Polish campaign of 1830 to 31. In these wars, half of the men died of disease or their wounds, few directly caused by combat. He knew that the Russian army had not improved and that whatever the scale of the upcoming conflict would be, the toll on the peasant army would be horrendous. Now, going into the war, we need to understand the state of the Russian army. The ground soldiers were predominantly serfs who were routinely beaten by the orders of the officers as a means of discipline. They were poorly supplied as much of the money earmarked for the provisions was stolen by the corrupt officer corps. The officers were corrupt because their pay was pathetically low, sometimes not getting paid for months. The peasants in the army used their trade skills to keep themselves alive. Some were tailors, some were cobblers. Others may have been bakers and carpenters. Without these skills, it is unlikely that the Russians could have put any army into the field. The cash-strapped Russian government was totally ill-prepared for what was to happen. The Turks, though, were even worse off. Their army was very poorly trained, even worse than the Russians. Their officers were often treated like pashas, and their troops were oftentimes not paid for months on end. Let's put things into perspective about the treatment and lifestyle of the coming combatants. We need to go back to Professor Feige's book on the Crimean War. Quote, the annual cost of the Turkish infantry soldier, salary, rations, and clothing was 18 silver rubles. The equivalent costs for the Russian soldier were 32 rubles, for the Austrian, 53 rubles, for the Prussian, 60 rubles, for the French, 85 rubles, and for the British foot soldier, 134 rubles. Political pressure was beginning to grow on the side of the Turks as the Russians began to cross the Pruth River in June of 1853 into Moldavia and Wallachia. Muslim leaders saw this as a cause to declare a holy war against the Russians. Protests against the Sultan were growing in size and violence. Calls for his ouster rose from all parts of the Ottoman Empire. Despite the knowledge that the Turkish army was by no means ready or capable of war, the pressure to go to war was too great to bear by the Sultan. The Sultan and his advisors did have one thing in their favor, the promises of the French and British to come to their aid should they go to war with Russia. At a meeting of the Grand Council on September 26th and 27th of 1853, they made the decision to go to war, but not until they had time to fortify forts in the region and gather an additional 40,000 troops. None of the leaders of the Turkish army or navy felt that they could resist the Russian forces, but they did feel that with the support of their allies, they would survive. The Tsar, for his part, thought now is the time to stir up emotions of the Orthodox Christians in the Ottoman Empire. But his foreign minister, Count Karl Nesselrode, cautioned Nicholas that using that strategy might backfire as the Turks could do the same thing to the Muslims living in the Russian-controlled areas like the Crimea and Caucasus. Nicholas, though, could not be dissuaded from his belief that he was the defender of the Orthodox faith and that he had to move forward. 
Esselrod's influence over this topic was, to say, the least shaky, as he was a Protestant. Over and over, Nicholas and his relatives kept talking about how the Balkan pan-Slavs would rise up in a holy war against their oppressors, the Turks. Mikhail Pogodin wrote a memorandum to the Tsar in December 1853 on the subject of the rising of the pan-Slavic movement, which further emboldened the Tsar. The passage that most endeared Nicholas to this memorandum was this, quote, The greatest moment in Russia's history has arrived, greater perhaps even than the days of Poltava and Borodino. If Russia does not advance, it will fall back. That is the law of history. But can Russia really fail? Would God allow that? No. No, he is guiding the great Russian soul, and we see that in the glorious pages we have dedicated to him in the history of our fatherland. Surely he would not allow it to be said. Peter founded the dominion of Russia in the east, Catherine consolidated it, Alexander expanded it, and Nicholas betrayed it to the Latins. No, that cannot be, and will not be. With God on our side, we cannot go back. And it's interesting that in this full memorandum, which you can read in uh, Professor Feige's book, uh, there's more to it, and Nicholas would make comments here and there about it, uh, where they said, oh, you know, if we got all 20 million of these people, you know, we could raise an army of 20,000, and Nicholas goes, we'd be lucky to get 10% of that, and that would be the truth. But this passageway, he underlined it numerous times, every single line. This is what Nicholas was thinking. This is why he couldn't compromise. He really believed that God was leading Russia to war and would not let it lose. Next time, we begin the Crimean War in earnest, beginning with hostilities in the region my mother was born in, Serbia. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Still can't believe it's been four years. Thanks to all my listeners but especially those who frequent the Facebook page to debate and discuss issues revolving around Russian history. So now, as always, da svidanya i spasiba bolshoya.